All righty then. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight's features include Jim Carrey counting random numbers and conning sweet McGregor's. It's party time! Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let's let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, Pet Detective. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I'm smoking, as in I'm on fire, as in please, I'm literally on fire, help me. Oh, good God. No, we're good. We're fine for now. But yes, so so in case you couldn't tell from our lovely banter, uh, we are talking about Jim Carrey. He doesn't have a movie coming out right now. Uh, The only movie he has coming out this year is his appearance in Sonic the Hedgehog, where he'll be playing Dr. Eggman. (laughs) Which I'm really curious about because he's going to be live action. Yep. You're going to make up... uh, Marsden is as well. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously, in the, but, like, Sonic the Hedgehog himself is going to be animated, so it's going to be, like, a oh. Smurfs thing, so he's going to be, like, the Hank Azaria for those Smurfs movies is Jim Carrey oh. as Dr. Eggman, which, if you were going to do Dr. Eggman in live action, Paul Giamatti's there. Right. I mean, just go with him. Yeah. Just he probably would have been better. Him. Even Danny DeVito. <laughs> yeah, sure. But can you imagine? It's like, yeah. I need to get the blue hedgehog. Perfect. <laughs> right. Um, so we're doing Jim Carrey, not because he has a movie coming out or anything, and not because of his birthday, which did just pass about a month ago, so happy birthday, belated, yeah, Mr. Carrey. Sure. Uh, but I believe he is 57, because he was born 62. Holy shit, Jim Carrey's almost 60. Yeah, it's weird to think. Oh my god. And uh, we're doing this because this week we're releasing this is the 25th anniversary of not just Ace Ventura Pet Detective coming out, but also the year of 1994, which was the year of the carry, many could argue, because a bit of backstory, before he was ever famous, Jim Carrey was born in Canada, pure-blooded Canadian, uh, came down here because he had an interest in stand-up in like his very late teens, early 20s, but was actually mentored in the stand-up game, interestingly enough, by Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, then he started getting smaller parts in movies, uh, most of which wouldn't be released until he became a big star later. Probably the biggest example of him trying to be a lead was, like, Once Bitten, a.k.a. Holy fucking Oof. shit, Teen Wolf is really popular. We need to do this book with vampires. Yep, 100%. That's totally what 100%. that movie is. 100%. That's a terrible, <laughs> terrible film. A very forgettable bad movie. But he did make a big impression um, with certain people along the way. Like, he's in a couple late 80s Clint Eastwood movies, like The Deadpool. And mm-hmm. also, the, there's a random scene in Pink Cadillac, the probably the worst Clint Eastwood movie, where they're at a club and there's a guy doing Elvis impressions, and you're like, oh, fuck, it's Jim Carrey. He's got, like, a glorified cameo and Peggy Sue got married. That's true, yes, he worked with Coppola yeah. even before in the Sam. Yeah. Um, he, where he met his friend Nick Cage, which is true, they are friends, apparently. Of course they are. Of, of course, yes. course they are. There's a great bit on the um, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, what was it, the Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, with him, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about, uh, while he was making Man on the Moon, 
he was having lunch with Nick Cage, and there was just a point where Nick Cage said, I'm sorry, I have to leave. You look lost. You're not Jim. And then he left. Oh, God. Which is one of my favorite ah. stories I've ever heard. He, he weirded out Nick Cage. That that has to be something. That's fair. But anyway, um, eventually his years of doing stand-up and having small bit parts leads to 1994, where Ace Ventura Pet Detective comes out in February. Then in July, The Mask comes out. And then in December, Dumb and Dumber comes out. Those are three of the biggest hit comedies of the 90s. And mm. to the point where... All those movies together worldwide at the time made $705 million, which in a modern currency would be $1.2 billion. Yeah, so he's kind of a big star. Yeah, it, it kind of pulls him a bit. He does some movies after this. you know. He exploded into Hollywood. And as someone who was more cognizant at I mean, that time, uh, Adam, what was yeah. what? where did you first discover Carrie? Where, where, what's your connection to Mr. Jim Carrey? Oddly enough, the first time I saw Jim Carrey is I went to Cedar Point when I was really young and we stayed the night out in Ohio and I caught the infamous Jim Carrey's like first stand up special. That's mm-hmm. the first time I saw him. And then it's probably been, you know, maybe a year or two and then In Living Color. Right. And then I just knew him from In Living Color where he was Vera and Fire Marshal Bill and and I just you loved him. I mean, the, the, what he used to do with his body is insane. But when Ace Ventura came out, I was really excited. And I I watched all of his movies. Uh, and, I mean, of course, they started to fall off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, no, I was a huge, huge Jim Carrey fan. Especially because with The Lemmy Color, I mean, it is predominantly an African-American cast. Yes. You had Jim Carrey, and I can't remember her fucking name. But she had, like, the red hair and the curls. But they were basically the only two white cast members. Right. And Jim Carrey, every time he was on, I mean, he stole the show. And you could tell everybody else on the cast knew that he was going to be a big star. Because they just, it literally turned to the point to where, you know, three out of five skits on Let Me Color were Jim Carrey skits. Like, he was a huge, huge star. And they all knew it. And they fostered it. I mean, and let's face it, he was our modern-day Jerry Lewis, Robin Williams, when Robin Williams first hit the scene. Like, he was the biggest thing to happen in comedy in his era. Easily. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's very true. Um, I remember the first time I probably ever saw him in anything was uh, probably Batman Forever. Um, (laughs) To be fair, he is the best part of that movie, I would argue. It's, uh, It's arguable. (laughs) <laughs> it's because it's not Tommy Lee Jones but, definitely not Tommy Lee Jones once again one of my other great favorite stories ever is apparently him coming over to Tommy Lee Jones and asking like do you not well, like well, what's our deal man you seem kind of negative about me he's like I don't like you I can't sanction your buffoonery <laughs> one of the best quotes I've ever heard well, and it totally sounds like a Tommy Lee Jones line of course he'd oh, say that sure, of course um, but I think Jim Carrey, especially as I've gone back and revisited some of those movies from around this time, like, I really loved, like, The Mask and Ace Ventura, both of them, and then Dumb and Dumber, um, and also Liar Liar, of course, a lot of those, like, family movies he made around this time. Um, I find him to be kind of, like, the same way I've, I've said previously, I approach Will Smith, where it's like, I like this dude, but I don't know if his movies hold up that well. Yeah, it's, I think that's accurate. I think a lot of his comedic vehicles. I'm honestly like the older I get, the more I love stuff like Truman Show or Man on the Moon, which 
what we should talk about, like the two of our movies we're talking about today, which we should say we had two movies that we picked at the end of our last episode, um, one that's good, one that's bad, that were randomly selected. The good one is I Love You, Philip Morris from 2010, and then the bad one is The Number 23 from 2007, and those are both very much post his massive, huge heyday as a comedic star. He was still making movies that were successful, like not too long before Number 23 is like Bruce Almighty, which is still one of the highest grossing comedies of like which the is, new millennium. Yeah, which is crazy. Because <laughs> it's not that great. <laughs> it's not that good. No, yeah. I agree with you on like the Truman show. I, I, I appreciate it more now. Um especially because like Ed Harris in it just fucking is so good. I was never really into Man on the Moon. I grew up a big Andy Kaufman fan and I, I for some reason he did not I just saw Jim Carrey pretending to be Andy Kaufman. Like there was no the separation was there for me. But uh no, I agree with you. You watch some of the movies that he tried to do seriously, and he's not bad at it. No. The the only thing is, he was still riding high on the Jim Carrey shtick a lot when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, there would still be the facial or even the voice, vocal uh, inflections and things like that, that you're like, oh, that's Ace Ventura. Like, he still had that. Um Honestly, I would say of those movies from that era, and this is very reversal of what it was at the time, I would say the one that holds up the most is The Cable Guy. It's so funny. The wife and I were just talking about The Cable Guy. We started watching a true crime story about the Menendez brothers, and then I remembered <laughs> that <laughs> Aaron Roberts played the Menendez brothers and The Cable Guy. Yes. Oh, hilarious. No, I loved The Cable Guy. I liked The Cable Guy when it first came out. And that movie was just destroyed. Because it really wasn't his traditional stuff, and he was trying to kind of go outside of his style where, honestly, it works so much better because the wacky Jim Carrey sensibility works so much more for a guy who legitimately seems like he could kill someone. Like a psychopath. Yes, yeah, exactly. He's a psycho. Right. Um, and, and then, because, you know, that happens and that kind of wobbles his career a bit, Liar Liar also happens, so it's like a bit of a give and take. Man on the Moon and The Grinch are actually the biggest example of this. Ooh. Not so much box office-wise, but as much as, like, on his mental state. Because, obviously, watch the Netflix Jim and Andy documentary for all of that, about how deep in character he was at that point. And then right after that, he does The Grinch, which famously, being in that costume was so traumatic he literally had to work with a former Navy SEAL about how to work through being tortured by being in that suit. Which is crazy to me. You want to watch someone literally who has lost their fucking grip on reality. Yeah, that Jim and Andy documentary. Watching like, oh my god, this guy's lost his mind. Yep. Uh, but so it's a lot of give and take. Sometimes it'll make big successful movie, then a sort of dramatic piece most people would forget about. And that's what set the stage pretty much for, like, this era of his career. Um, Interesting that, like, the movie does in between these two that we're doing is Yes Man, which is totally like a sellout, let's go back to Jim Carrey style. It's a a liar, liar ripoff. Yeah. Yeah. So that sets the stage, and let's get into at least our good feature first, which is one we really want to talk about because it's very underseen, very underappreciated. 2010's I Love You, Philip Morris. Hi, I'm Steven. I was a good father, a good Christian and a great husband. Then one day, something wonderful happened. You might even call it a revelation. I'm gay! You're what? I'm gay. I wanted to give everything money could buy. So I became a con man. My name is Stephen Russell. Nice to meet you, Stephen Russell. My name is Philip Morris. 
You are the sweetest, most gentle man I've ever known. I'm gonna take care of everything. Everything was gonna be just fine. I love you, Philip Morris! I love you! So, I Love You, Philip Morris uh, comes out December 3rd, 2010 in America. Um, it's directed by uh, John Requa and Glenn Ficara. This is their directorial debut. They were screenwriters before this, most famous for doing Bad Santa. Was their big script that they did before this. And you can tell it has a similar sort of dark comedy sensibility. Oh, 100%. This is a very, very... It's a, almost hard to call this movie a comedy at certain points. Because mm-hmm. it's very serious. I mean, the subject matter is incredibly serious. No, I, mean, I would argue it is very much a dark comedy. I mean, there's definitely a drama there. Maybe a dark dramedy is the more appropriate okay. term. Because you know the, what? I'll accept that. Yes, because uh, the basic premise is uh, this is based on a true story. Um, where Jim Carrey plays Stephen Russell, who's uh, a guy who's an average family man, a good Christian, is married to Leslie Mann, um, and then he gets into a car crash, and he has an epiphany that he is actually gay. And he immediately just impulsively leaves his family, goes and moves to Florida, hooks up with local boy toy, uh, who's played interestingly enough by uh, Rodrigo Santoro, a.k.a. Xerxes from 300. I, I know. Every time I see him, I'm like, I cannot believe that's him. I know. <laughs> he's really good in this, though. Like, you feel bad for him. While he's um, starting to live up this gay lifestyle, he realizes, to quote the movie, wow, being gay is really expensive. So he decides to make money the only way this former police officer can know how, uh, real fast, by being a con man. And he just immediately goes into it, starts just, like, grifting money in any way he can, ends up yeah, in jail. Yeah, card fraud. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, but all that. Then he ends up in jail, where he runs into the titular Philip Morris, uh, played by Ewan McGregor, and they fall in love with each other. And it's a very sweet, genuine romance. And from there, they're constantly separated, come back together, and are driven apart, sometimes by the law, and sometimes by Stephen himself. Yes, I think that was a very apt description. I remember when this movie came out, I had read a couple articles about it, probably online or whatever, and then nothing. I didn't hear anything about it. And then it popped up on, like, On Demand or something. I'm like, holy shit, I gotta watch this movie. And instantly I'm like, why does anybody know about this movie? It's a great movie. It, it To me, this is my favorite Jim Carrey, not shticky Jim Carrey performance. I think he's really, really good in it. I think you and McGregor, you, you, dude, he's heartbreakingly good in it. You feel so bad for him. He's just a naive sort of kid really even though he's a grown man but he he comes off like almost like a child and you know he meets this other guy and they fall in love and he's just constantly being used and abused in this relationship and sometimes he knows what's going on and he wants it to stop but at the same time he's kind of guilty too because he does know but i really really like this movie it's a daring movie too and maybe that's the reason i guess it didn't get as uh you know sort of watched appreciate it as it should have but I, I just the fact that this guy did this shit and was successful is insane so yeah i had a similar situation with this where i'd heard about it and then kind of disappeared off the radar i think because of a lot of the subject matter unfortunately it just wasn't gonna get a wide release at this time especially it, it really is a case the movie came out at too late a time i think if it was that in a more modern like context i think people would fucking fawn over this for the most part and i i remember watching it and i had a similar thing where i'm like this movie's amazing and nobody's fucking heard of it i, I can't believe that 
And uh, what really works, I think, is I agree it's, I think, my favorite Jim Carrey performance because it has the best of his dramatic and comedic chops. I think it's the best of both worlds with him where the comedy in here is precise and perfect and just so well-timed. There, all, A lot of these earlier bits where he's doing like his initial con man games, like when he freaking puts the cooking oil all over the supermarket floor and then slips on it, wonderful physical comedy genius but then when it gets dramatic when especially it's a lot of like him and Ewan McGregor being tender you feel so invested in that relationship you really want these two crazy kids to be together in the middle of this prison yard and the dark comedy that surrounds that at the same time is wonderful like I think maybe one of the best comedic scenes of this decade is the bit where Jim Carrey is in his cell and Ewan McGregor has the guy in the next cell play the music and it's this wonderful scene where, like, they're dancing, and it's very tender, and it's very genuine, it's very beautiful, and the prison guards are coming into the cell next door and beating the shit out of that guy. <laughs> I know! It is such the perfect blend of super dark, fucked-up comedy, and at the same time, a very sweet, genuine moment between two people. <laughs> I love yeah. that scene so much. Yes, it is comedic and everything, but it's also a very restrained performance from Jim Carrey. It's one of the first times I've ever seen him really be able to hold back and only do his physical shtick when it was necessary. It's, it, I love that. I love the, you know, where they're passing notes in between constantly and the one guy's, the one guy's constantly getting pissed that he's got to keep taking the notes. You got to feel bad for Leslie Mann a little bit in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like a little bit you do. And especially the kids. Like, well, I, I think the, the movie doesn't really concern itself with uh, his daughter that much, um, necessarily. No, but the fact that, you know, it's based on a true story, it's like, you know that happened, so it's like, oh, that poor kid. Well, what I was really surprised I really enjoyed is the fact, I'm not sure if this is as reality-based as it is, is the fact that they seem to have at least, like, a civil relationship when they talk to each other. Like, it could have been a lot more of, like, a bitter, contentious relationship, considering she's very Christian and God-loving, and this, mm-hmm. her man has left and become, like, a gay criminal. I, I I like the fact that they at least have, like, a civil relationship when they're over the phone. It doesn't seem like they're extremely contentious with each other. It feels a lot more real that way. It feels a lot more honest. Like, she's trying to kind of make this work. She's not pleased, necessarily. She, it's like, she co- totally understands him, like, when, when he calls her uh, as he's leaving, uh, after everyone's realized, like, oh, shit, he's stealing stuff from our financial statements and she's just like are you on the lamb again oh, you know me so well i love that <laughs> like, like so, these people know steven like that's what i like is that jim carrey portrays a guy who on paper is a fucking awful piece of shit yet he's so charming like you can't not be at least kind of like endeared by him and i think that's what works and makes his con man schemes so perfect is jim carrey is such a charming affable guy that as he swindles money from you, you don't even know it's because you're so charmed by that smile. You're so charmed by his affable nature. It's wonderful. It's such a great use of like an actor to a con man role. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I, I think, honestly, in anybody else's hands, he maybe would have come off as unlikable. But the whole time, it's funny. Like I said, he's a total piece of shit. And what he's doing is terrible. I mean, he's robbing people of hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of dollars. And yet... You want him to get away with it because you want him and Philip to be together and, and succeed and ride off into the sunset. And that takes, you know, as we call in the biz, acting to, to make you really, really fall in love with the character. 
and he he's so good at it. and dude and what a good opening to this movie too like where he's laying in the bed sick and the dialogue you're like holy shit this is gonna be dark like it hits you right off the bat this is a dark movie yep and i i just i think maybe that's another one of the reasons why people are like oh nope <laughs> no we want to see jim carrey do funny stuff and talk out of his butt not die of aids <laughs> die of aids yes Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think what also works is the fact that you have to have that counterbalance, and I think all the supporting actors do a pretty good job of that. But especially Ian McGregor is it's it's, it's like you mentioned. I wouldn't say necessarily childlike, but he is very sort of innocent. I love the fact that he went to prison. This is really what happened to Philip Morris because he forgot to return a rental car. Yep. <laughs> like, and he was charged with theft, and I think that's such a great way of like, oh, of course, that's how he got into jail. Um, and there's, there is really an innocence and a shyness. It's like Jim Carrey says, you're the most gentle person I've ever met. And it's true. He's so gentle. He's so honest. But I like the fact that the movie doesn't keep him in that sort of docile state. When he gets wronged, like, you can tell he's been hurt and he's a changed person. When, oh, like, he's pissed. Oh, he's yeah. bitter. Yeah, he's pissed and bitter. But you also believe that he would still have the investment in Steve, especially that the beautiful montage that happens at the climax of this movie where it seems like Steve's dying and they're like, sorry, we had to took him out to an experimental facility. There's nothing we can do. And Ewan is just like so heartbroken by this. And then, Hey, your lawyer's here. And then you see Steve oh. and right. There's, there's so many emotions going through. And I think maybe one of the best edited sequences I've seen in any movie is the fact that they hold on that. And Steve's about to say something, and then they cut midway through him slapping and saying, You fucker! Genius. Such a great comedic edit. Honestly, it's it's one of my favorites, just because you're so much pent-up emotion, and that bit and the exact point they cut off on is the perfect amount for a hilarious thing to relieve the tension of, Oh my god, we just saw Steve die from hates. Quote-unquote. God, Ewan McGregor really just... He's so good. And he's... I mean, in everything he's in, I love you, McGregor, but when he gets sad in this movie, like your heart breaks for him. Like when he's crying, when he thinks that Steven has died of AIDS or is dying of AIDS, I mean, you, your heart just instantly breaks for him. He's so upset. And they had just gone through all these tumultuous things and he's still so attached and still loves him so much. And then when he walks back in the room, you're like, oh, but he still loves him. Like, he can't be that mad at him. <laughs> no, yeah, and I think it's really sold by, like, how their relationship builds earlier, where you mentioned the whole, like, trading notes and all that because they're from different cell blocks. Then mm-hmm. they get together for a bit, and there's scenes like them watching the movie and cradling up to each other as a guy's, like, masturbating in the front. Uh, great. Another <laughs> great dark comedic moment in face of this beautiful moment. Um, and then when Steve gets transferred... I, I love how that's edited of him, of Ewan McGregor, like, going through the prison yard. And he said many times, like, oh, I don't go through the yard. I'm where I'm going to get beaten because I'm a soft, gentle boy. But he, the fact that he braves that, that he goes through, and he's even, like, impatient waiting for the door to open so he can just see Steve one last time is oh, one of, like, the most romantic, beautiful moments I've seen in the movie. I know. It's so good. It reminds me of, like, in classic movies, the woman or the man running after a train. Yes. Like, all right, I promise, all right. Yes. It's, it's literally that scene, but in a prison yard. And it's handled so well and just acted so wonderfully. And the thing is, this would have been, honestly, a good contender for our last episode, for an underrated. I, I, I don't understand. I, I mean, 
how have people not seen this movie? I, I think I think it's just because when it came out initially, there wasn't a lot of attraction around it. I, apparently, at the time, the studio like they couldn't get any of the major studios or even the major independent releases to like put this out. Like the opening montage of like credits is just like some name I've never heard of, and it's a really bad like CG logo. I'm like, who the fuck is like this releasing strategy? Yeah. I think it's just because like it was so no one had confidence in it despite how wonderful it is. And I, th- I think it's one of those that deserves to be more of an undiscovered gem. Interestingly, it's it's weird how it would have worked for last week, or if you stick around to the end of this episode, our next week's episode. Oh, um, yeah, it would have. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Either one. Um, but we'll get to that later at the end of the episode, guys. Um, <laughs> yes. It, it deserves so much more mention, I think, especially because we mentioned this before. His attempts to be more dramatic... Uh, Jim Carrey's have not been the most successful. I think because they kind of try and pigeonhole him into roles that don't also kind of take advantage a bit of his stretchiness, his physicality. Like, you watch The Majestic, and it's like, this is for, like, a Jimmy Stewart. This is literally a Frank Capra movie. He's too energetic to be Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) That wouldn't work for this. And I think even Man on the Moon has some of those issues and some of the other ones he's done. We'll get to one in a second. Uh, be very clear miscasting but I think this is just a great apex point for that because it just takes advantage fully of like who Carrie is as a performer and does I think a very complex performance from him as well where it's like he's someone like we mentioned you're constantly like invested and you want to see him get past this but also when he wrongs like especially Philip you feel wrong too like the bit where um, he and Philip get arrested again and they're next to each other, and Philip just says, I never want to see you again. You made me an accomplice, you fucker. You just feel so heartbroken for the both of them, and you're so conflicted about it. It's, it's such a wonderful way, especially portraying a gay relationship in a way, like, I was worried going back to this, like, is this going to feel slightly more homophobic than it did at the time, given it's been a decade. You always mm, kind of have that right. worry when you revisit something. And I would say mostly not, but then again, we're two heterosexual men. So we can't necessarily be the ones to judge that. The only time it kind of comes off is maybe some of the use of a certain gay slur. The F word. Yeah, the other F word. You're, you're all aware of it. Um, early on, it might feel a bit intimidating, especially when he has this like epiphany moment. He's being loaded up into the ambulance where it feels like he's repeating it constantly just as like, that's the joke. You might. I was a bit worried at that point revisiting this. But afterward, but, it's only really used by people who, like, are genuinely homophobic and are right. not supposed to be, like, someone we're siding with. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, and being a heterosexual, never once saw the relationship as a uh, relationship between two gay men. I saw it as just a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, it was played straight across the board, just two people who are in love. It, they tend to obviously allude to that he's gay in the beginning because... Of the one scene, you know, where he's in the hotel room and what he says when he's getting in the stretcher and everything. But after that, they kind of drop it. Like, it's just a relationship. That was the smart way to go about it. And, yeah, I I instantly just thought that these were two people in love. Gay, straight, whatever. And I think think that it was very smart and it it worked very well. To me, it, it still holds up. It doesn't come across homophobic to me really at all. I like the fact that Ewan McGregor almost becomes like Lorraine Bracco in Goodfellas, like a mob wife <laughs> by the end of it. Like someone who's completely unaware of all the crime that's going on. And then when like the police are literally coming by and it's just like, oh, 
you were hiding something. You asshole, I knew it. Uh, like it, it it feels very genuine. It doesn't feel like, oh, it's two hysterical gay men at all. It feels like, no, these are two people who are in a relationship and one of them is a fucking idiot who does horrible shit right. all the time. Constantly. He's an habitual line stepper. And, and we got to talk about some of the ways that he cons people in this movie are amazing. You can tell that, like, Carrie is pulling off so, so much of, like, it feels improvised, but obviously it wouldn't be. Like, that's, it it genuinely feels like he is a con man coming up with stuff on his feet. Like, the tension of, say, the scene where he's become the head financial agent at that company, and they're just like, so, hey, what's your presentation on the quarterlies? And you have that worry and trepidation, like, he didn't prepare anything, he's gonna fuck this up. And he's like, well, you know, I'm gonna switch things up. And uh, show you my presentation. <laughs> it's a completely different thing. <laughs> and wins everybody yeah, exactly. over. It, it's like you mentioned where when I was watching this the first time, I genuinely was like, did any of this really happen this way? And the only things they changed are just like the timeline of it. Like some of the escapes occurred right. later or earlier. But um, I love the fact that even like the biggest change they do, which is interesting, is the whole AIDS faking out thing. They're like, oh, no, that wasn't quite true in that it wasn't the first time he did it. <laughs> he did that before he ever met Phil. <laughs> they changed something because it seemed too unrealistic. I, I mean, just the level of balls on that guy to not only get away with it the first time, but then be like, you know what? I'm going to try the same thing again. And it worked. <laughs> I mean, way to go, man. Uh-huh. And I love the fact that he was sentenced to prison after all these escapes and everything for 144 years. That is what he's living currently. Well, he is, uh, yeah. I mean, well, why not just call it life at this point? <laughs> yes, a, a true embarrassment to the state of Texas and its current governor at the time, George Bush. Ah. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. The only <laughs> embarrassment of his entire career. Yeah, 100%, yeah. Anyway, that's the extent of our political commentary. Really, what is your favorite of, like, it's... the smaller escape bits that happen? Oh, man. There's so many good ones. <laughs> I love the one where he just basically gets the uh, the cop suit, but it's, like, a female cop suit. Well, no, I mean, I, th- I think it's, like, it's a disguise where it's, like, he's dressed up like a prostitute because he sees somebody yeah, like, come yeah, out right. of the disguise, yeah. That's what I mean, right. And he just walks out the fucking front door. <laughs> he's just gone. I love that one, but dude, the best is the switch in the uh, the medical boards. I mean, that's crazy that that worked. Where he just eating to get real thin, would make himself vomit, got real pale, and oh, I got AIDS. Everyone's like, oh, okay. He looks like he has AIDS, so he must have AIDS. And he literally says, and not one person decided to give me an AIDS test. That's fucking insane. <laughs> He's that convincing, Adam. Oh, I, I I love all that. I would personally say my favorite is the the marker thing, where he literally makes the the white scrubs become green so he can get in and out. Oh, that's the one that I was thinking of. I love that one. If not if nothing else, it's obviously the act of it's fun. But I love seeing all the, the prisoners. Jesus. Well, right. But I love also seeing the prisoners crowd around like outside. There's just like look over like, is he gonna pull off another escape? It's pretty fucking right. entertaining. Let's keep watching. <laughs> He's going for it again. And he got away with it. How many times did he escape? Four times? I think it's like, yeah, four or five times he escaped after Jesus. he... And, and that's the thing. That's what's so great about this movie is on so many levels. It's a great romance story. It's a great con man story. It's a really cool 
true story that you can like research after this. It's like, no, this is real. Uh-huh. This fucking happened. It's made me want to read Stephen Russell's actual book, which he wrote in this movie's based on. Yeah, me too, man. It's one of those things that's always in my queue to buy and I always forget. But yeah, I really want to read this book because the fact that this guy got away with this shit alone is worth a read. Who escapes from prison four or five times? No violence at all involved. Ever. No. Ever. Like, they didn't watch him that hard after the first time? He's able <laughs> oh. to do it three or four more times? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I loved... Re- I read um, an interview with Steven that was done around the time the movie was coming out, where they talk about how, like, the interviewer for NPR came over. He's, like, in a maximum security facility that he's the only one in, and they literally wheel him out, like, on a Hannibal Lecter gurney and put him mm-hmm. down, and he's completely strapped... <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> and now they have constant surveillance because they're like they don't. He could easily get out. The NPR guy interviews him, and says, "Oh, what about um, some things that you might notice that made you want to do your escape?" And it's like, "Um, well, you know, the door's slightly ajar. Um, somebody's badge is hanging a bit loose." And the NPR interview realizes he's literally describing what I saw on the way over here. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what's so great is this guy is so extremely intelligent. Yet, he's such a scumbag, too, but he's also very sweet, and he's very investing. He's such a layered, complex character, and it's such a great role for Carrie to play because of that. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I guess we should move into our final thoughts, then, Adam, on I Love You, Philip Morris. Okay. I picked this movie because, like I said, I feel this is one that a lot of people haven't seen that they should. I think a lot of people might shy away from it because of some of its subject material, but... Man, it is great. If you just want to see Jim Carrey give his best performance, then this is the movie. Uh, You want to see Ewan McGregor turn in another great performance? This is the movie. You want to see a beautiful love story with fucked up individuals? This is a good movie. You want to watch it just to see how someone escaped from prison five times? This is a good movie. You want to see a movie that is a true story that there's no way it can be true, but it is. This is a good movie. I, I, I just think this is a fantastic movie. I love this movie. I love everything about this movie. I love all the performances. And like it's, like we talked about, it makes me want to read the book. And, you know, that's saying a lot because I don't even know how to read. So, <laughs> I mean, that's saying a lot. Yep, um, echo a lot of that, obviously. I think it's a criminally underrated movie. Um, I think especially, the we didn't talk about the direction that much. It's amazing this is a first-time directorial thing mm-hmm. between these two guys. It's a very well-crafted movie. And they've made other things after this, like Focus um, and Crazy Stupid Love, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, things I think are fine, but I think I've never really come to this level. I think because it kind of went more into the studio system and made more, much more conventional movies because of how this kind of did, which is honestly a shame because I think if they were to once again kind of do a dark movie with a very sweet core at its heart, um, I think they could pull off another like near masterpiece. Like I, That's also why I love Bad Santa because even at, at the heart of the cynical, very bitter movie, there is still a heart that's going on there. There is still yeah. something that keeps you trucking along. And I think here it's emphasized so loud and huge by one of, I think, the best on-screen romances I've seen in a while, especially um, homosexual on any length, on any level, um, between um, Carrie and McGregor. It feels very genuine, it feels very sweet, it feels very beautiful, so that the comedic stuff hits all the funnier, and the moments of betrayal 
betray you, the audience, at the same time. It's, I think, such a masterfully done movie that even with, like, some of my gripes about the very beginning, I think it just, that goes by so quickly, and I think it's a movie, like we said, if you have been listening to this and somehow haven't decided to see this movie immediately, see it. Give it a chance. It's a wonderful movie. More people need to see this movie. Agreed. And now for a movie that should be kept in vaults and never seen by anyone again, uh, let's get to our bad feature, The Number 23. The Number 23. A heart-wrenching odyssey into paranoia. Chapter 1. All I could think about was the number. I was born at 11, 12 p.m. 11 plus 12. 23. My birthday, 23. Driver's license, social security number. It's all 23. Sif, it's imitating my life. You've concerned yourself with minutia and you've drawn wild conclusions from them. The number. What does that mean? He knows. So, the number 23. Um, this is uh, Jim Carrey's big thriller vehicle. Uh, came out February 23rd, 2007. Oh. Oh. Oh, spooky. It's very spooky. Um, and it's uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, which I think this is the first Joel Schumacher movie we've covered as a bad one on the show. Uh, yeah, which is surprising, because there's quite a few of them. There's quite a few, yeah, yeah. Um, and I found <laughs> this interesting while doing research that uh, apparently uh, Joel Schumacher is really good friends with David Fincher. Um, he actually directed a couple of the first season episodes of House of Cards after David Fincher directed the pilot. One of the first directors hired after Fincher to do an episode of House of Cards. And uh, you can tell that uh, they're friends, because I think uh, he's really trying hard to be David Fincher with this movie. 100%. Yeah. Um, and does a terrible job. Yeah, I mean, it's an awful movie. I, I would argue, <laughs> in, in the pantheon of really bad Joel Schumacher movies, uh, most people would point to, oh, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Um, I would watch either of those again than watch the number 23 ever again. Yeah, because at least those are entertainingly bad. Yes. Uh, you know, they're, they're just a clusterfuck on screen. Where this is really trying to be something like real heady and smart and really have a sharp twist to it. And it just does not work. I mean, at all this, I'm just going to get into it here, baby. I'm now vibing. All right. This movie, it's an idea that doesn't warrant the runtime of the movie. It's so padded, this movie. And it's just the fucking, Oh God, it's so stupid. It, It like, it just insults the audience. That's how I felt watching this whole movie. I'm like, obviously, like this this is so insulting. And it tries to make you think that they're being so smart and they're not. It's just it's it's just garbage. It's a movie lost to time, and I think that's exactly where it should be. It's just what? Yeah, because the uh, basic premise for those of you who rightly forgot this movie, um, Jim Carrey plays a dog catcher, uh, oh. who um is married to Virginia Madsen, they have a son, Logan Lerman. Uh, Percy Jackson himself, Logan Lerman. They they have like a sweet family relationship. They love each other. One day, Jim is uh, given this book by Virginia Madsen, and it turns out this book is very similar to his own upbringing. There was a lot of issues with like his mom died, and in the book, the character of um, Fingerling, great name for a badass detective. Yep. You know his his mother died. Um, he got the name Fingerling from a storybook that Jim Carrey also read when he was younger. And they intersperse this uh, between 
the storyline of Jim Carrey reading this book and the actual detective noir story, which looks like um, budget Zack Snyder. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it, absolutely. It looks like the uh, the opening of Seven. The mm-hmm. whole thing, which is the bright lights and the quick cuts and the... There's a lot of that, but also the sapia tone and sort of, like, the badass demeanor oh, of all the characters. Sure. Which is interesting, because this came out, like, the week before 300 came out in the States. So this was uh-huh. trying to be Zack Snyder before Zack Snyder was a stylistic thing that would carry around. Um, and, yeah, so Jim Carrey goes mad in the reality where he's the fucking dog catcher and all this shit. I'll honestly say, I think I was more, at least badly entertained by the detective story stuff. That stuff is hilarious because of how badass Jim Carrey's trying to be and failing. Uh, I agree a hundred percent. As he's playing the saxophone and shit like that, like, <laughs> this is fucking ridiculous. With his fucking tribal taps, <laughs> a sweet peppering of She Wants Revenge and Finger Eleven music. Oh, over. good God, the sex scenes. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, it's it's very clear that uh, Joel Schumacher has no real interest in, like, sexuality at this point in his career, and it's just so awkwardly done. It feels like a really bad, like, not even music video, but Vandy Fair shoot. <laughs> yes, but this does feel like a shitty music video, too. Uh, the noir scenes, anyways. Like, when Virginia Manson's walking up as her Italian alter ego... Fabrizia! Yeah, Fabrizia! Yay! Then they play the She Wants Revenge song. She got the fire that's silhouetting her. I'm like, this just looks like a music video for this song. It's not artful. It's not like fucking cool and deep and adds a layer to the movie. It's just shitty. It's shitty. It's hilarious, though. It's It's hilarious hilarious. shitty. But I'll tell you, I'm watching this movie and the whole time, and I hate to do this, but I'm just looking at Jim Carrey and I'm like, just be funny. Just do something. Because you're not doing anything in this movie. I think the the weird mistake they make is they try and make, like, Jim Carrey as the dog catcher. Like, this, not necessarily a Jim Carrey type, but he feels more like, say, a Steve Martin type. He feels like he's trying yeah, to be more, like, it. grounded like family man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's and he's not that. that. That was never, like, his strong suit. Even in, like, the comedies where he's supposed to play, like, the down-as-luck dude, he's still kind of weird. Like, in The Mask, that's kind of his character, but he's also into cartoons and doing silly shit. In this case, they try and play him as like, no, I'm a normal suburban dad that my kid loves and I'm in a great relationship with my wife who I have no chemistry with. Him and Virginia Madsen, who the fuck had that Zero idea? Chemistry. Not Zero none. Chemistry. And they could somehow house us on a dog catcher's budget. Well, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, they have zero chemistry. And I like Virginia Madsen. I think Virginia Madsen has been incredibly underused throughout her whole career i think mm-hmm. she's decent but it could have been anybody i mean especially when we have to get to the moment where she has the big reveal about what jim carrey's real backstory is and oh, she's for trying God's sakes like you don't already know well you don't already it's not like you don't really know but also like she's trying to convey like i'm trying to help you and it's like i don't believe the two of you have been no. together nearly as long as she's supposed to be and the ridiculousness of this twist where yeah, I agree that like you probably can guess it pretty quickly when well, you're dude, watching it. Well, dude, they show you in the Insane Asylum his name on a lockbox mm-hmm. before the reveal. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, he was at that Insane Asylum, so clearly it's something to do with him. And then it's like, he's holding the knife to her. No, you wrote it. And the whole time you go, well, obviously not. Like, like there's certain intimate details that like, how would she know about? 
Like that that's what they try and sell the red herring on. It's like no, come dude. You are you are literally insulting the intelligence of your audience this whole movie. This is a who done it where you know who did it pretty early on, I'd argue. Yeah, I mean admittedly I didn't the first time I saw this, I actually saw this theatrically, Adam. Uh, oh god. <laughs> I was I was dragged to this. No, no. Um, interestingly, I thought this would have flopped harder, but it actually didn't flop that badly. It for thirty million dollar budget made seventy eight million dollars, which is still crazy. That just shows the power Jim Carrey still had at this time. Um, well, that and plus it was like his first foray into dark, real dark material. Yeah, especially a thriller. He had n- never done right. a thriller before or since, obviously. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, I don't know if anything, like if Jim Carrey would ever do a thriller, it would probably make more sense for him to be like the guy, you know, is a serial killer from the start. Yeah, I agree. I think that would work. Mm-hmm. I think if Jim Carrey literally took a, on a role like that, where even that the new movie with Matt Dillon, I, I can't remember the fucking name of it now, but that Lars von Trier movie, the house that Jack yeah. built. Yeah. yeah. I could see a Jim Carrey doing that type of movie. Where he's just this unassuming, sort of charming killer, and you know it from the beginning. I think that would work for him. Yeah, either that um, or like something like um, the the character that um, Andrew Robinson played in the original Dirty Harry. Like yes. someone who's genuinely insane, and he's so intense in, in your face. I think that could really work for him. As opposed to this, where you're trying to see like, oh, the building madness that happens. It doesn't really ever feel like that. It just feels like Jim Carrey's kind of bored, and then he starts reading the book, and immediately he's crazy. Like, there's no build-up whatsoever. And He's immediately drawing on walls and saying, like, the number 23, all the connections, the right. 3 plus Instantly. 2. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And how long does it take him to read fucking book? <laughs> the things that, like, the size of two magazines put together. It looks like maybe 200 pages. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. But it's 22 chapters? Good God. Like, it takes him for fuck for. come on man oh it's just so uh and the other side characters who pop up in here are ridiculous too like danny houston as our exposition bot come on and i like danny houston i really do like him Mm -hmm. but you know why what well so he could have that sweet goatee in the detective scenes which i love that his (laughs) stupid fucking goatee is genius (laughs) i love it (laughs) <laughs> he can also be thrown out a window in this whole scene where it's like i thought of what i should have done but i decided not to the, the fingerling character is so much of just like a 14 year old boy's fantasy of what like a badass detective would be it's oh, such 100%. It's a 14 year old girl hot topic girls like fantasy of what a man is that's not inaccurate at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's such bullshit. And it really lessens the character you're trying to build when, like, oh, this is the story he wrote. Because one, it's fucking garbage. And two, like, this is your... It's a terrible book. It's, it's a, a terrible ter- book. Yeah, it's a terrible, awful story. Um, that also makes him so hero worshipy. And it's like, he's, he's a fucking, like, Mary Sue character. Just going, like, I know exactly the right thing to say at this moment and how to help this person. And I have weird mommy issues where I see my mommy and, like, the yeah. d- one victim I Very, see because it's the same actress, Lynn Collins. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really weird, really creepy. Um, or also Bud Court being, interestingly, the only person uncredited. Like, keep in mind, Bud Court was credited for our previous film we did, Theodore Rex. Not credited for this movie. Bud Court? You got me lost. Who the hell is Bud Court in that? 
he's the the doctor guy who that like Jim Carrey. Oh, the like, one who slits his own throat. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Why not? And then, of course, he gets the book, and it makes him go crazy too. You don't know. They never really fucking tell you. But my favorite supporting character of any of these is the dog Ned. Yeah. Every time that dog shows up, it's so funny that they're trying to make this dog intense. And it's like this cute, fat bulldog. A little mastiff. And you're like, aww. <laughs> and especially the moment where Jim Carrey like goes out into the street and he nearly gets hit by the bus and he keeps looking back at the dog. <laughs> I was dying watching that again. It's so bad. <laughs> like, let's put it this way. I went, I tried to like rent this movie on Prime. Mm-hmm. It's not even available on Prime. Nope. Everything is available on Prime. But not this one. You can find obscure, like, mid-80s sword and sorcery movies, not number 23 on Prime. Not number 23. I found it on my Comcast service. It took me... Well, I, I, I only paused it once, and it still felt like I watched it for three hours. Like, it's just so... Oh, God. Oh, this was totally a fits and spurts movie where I, like, watched about 30 minutes, and I'm like... Gotta pause it. Yep, hey, look, there's it. a YouTube video I could watch right now. <laughs> like, that totally kept happening, because I'm like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Within 45 minutes in, I'm fucking around on my phone, watching my <laughs> daughter dance to the Moana soundtrack while the movie's playing. Like, I just don't care. Like, I don't care. This this is, I saw it probably right when it came to home video. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I'm like, okay, well, I'll check it out. I like thrillers and, you know. Jim Carrey doing something different, and within a half hour, I'm like, I'm so bored. I remember that when I first watched it. Like, I'm I'm bored. This is just stupid. And then the detective scenes come on, and you're laughing, and then you're bored again. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or the number killed her. Now it's come after me. Okay. <laughs> we haven't talked about this, but I think the first one I burst out laughing is when he's reading the book and he's reading about Fingerling's childhood, and you see the montage of like young Fingerling walking around with friends and shit through the neighborhood, and it's with, like, the lamest, like, fucking, almost looks like Pooh Corner, like, CG storybook (laughs) shit, Uh where he's just, like, walking around, there's, like, all these, like, fucking uh, cross-hatch stitching and all this other bullshit around these trees as a live-action boy is walking through with his friends. Like, this is fucking stupid. Oh, yeah, they were trying really hard. Like, the scene where it showed the dog and the grass, and then all of a sudden the, it almost looked like a pop-up book. With the widow's house. And you're like, this is fucking ridiculous. (laughs) It's all over the place visually with what they're trying to do. Yeah. Which is is a big thing with, like, obviously with Joel Schumacher, it's a big problem he's always had. It's just how stylistically inconsistent he can be from movie to movie. I mean, sometimes that works where it's like, if it's a grounded thriller where, like, characters are talking to each other, like A Time to Kill works. Even, like, Lost Boys, I would argue, works as, like, a silly power fantasy for what I think that's probably his best movie is Lost Boys. I mean, there's also Tigerland, which is another, like, it's a grounded... Tigerland's a good movie. Tigerland's a good movie. Right, he's he's not an untalented director. Um, I think it's just that when he delves into his, sort of, guilty pleasure impulses, he, like, deep dives like a fucking Olympic diver. (laughs) And this is a great example of how that can just go super awry and just not really work for this clearly terrible script, um, which this is the... Written by uh, Fernie Phillips, his first and last credit. He's never worked again in Hollywood, no surprise. Um, it, it's just, you can tell he can't really elevate this because he just wants to dip into like, oh, I'm going to do a sexy crime thriller and yeah. it's going to be great. Let's make him bone. <laughs> okay. 
this is the guy who put nipples on the bat suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just uh, as Which a is... short, I think this movie would work fine. Deal with the number twenty three because that is a, a conspiracy that a lot of people have problems with for some reason. But whatever, fine, go with that. It could work. It could play to people. But as a fucking almost hour and forty five minute movie, oh. Oh, it's just such padded nonsense. Yeah, um, I mean, you want final thoughts then, Adam? Go ahead, just the last bits about the number 23. It's padded nonsense. Yes, that's it. Um, I mean, I echo all that, and I'll just add, like we said before, I don't want to discourage necessarily Jim Carrey from experimenting, because when he experiments, we also get stuff like, I love you, Philip Morris, obviously. And I, I don't want to necessarily see that, because I think he's still an extremely talented guy, who can do a lot? Um, I think it, I'm, I'm honestly just like really sad for Jim Carrey right now because of how depressed he seems and how much have he you like. Watch, have you watched his new show, Happy? Right on the Showtime or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I have not. I have not either. I heard it's actually really good. Right, and I that that it, it intrigues me because it's like he hasn't worked in television on that kind of a status since, like in Living Color. Um, I, I want to uh. see him do more interesting things, and doing a thriller wasn't a bad idea. But it is definitely a total miscasting of him because we didn't really go into like how much of a bad dad stereotype he is at the beginning of the movie. But all the dad jokes are garbage and not in the endearing way. Um, and he just seems kind of like an asshole, quite frankly. When he's 100%. like, when he, that scene where like he's sitting down with the therapist because he got bitten by the dog, he's not even giving her an inch really. And it's just like he's an absentee father and husband the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Even before, like, the whole thing with the the book, being discovering that, he's still just kind of not around. And just the stupid coincidences that go along the way as well. Like, probably my favorite of, like, the stupid thing in the reveal is literally he meets Virginia Madsen within seconds after leaving the hospital. (laughs) Walking out in front of the hospital on the sidewalk. In front of the hospital, he bumps into He's supposed to be 23 at that time. By right, the way. yeah. Yeah, 23-year-old Jim Carrey, sure. Because uh, yeah. we didn't see him at that age. They just gave him a all. fucking Paul McCartney haircut. <laughs> well, yeah, and especially, like, you figure it would have made a lot more sense if, like, oh, this reveal would have happened, and it would have been like, oh, she's a doctor at the facility, maybe, and she grew, a, like, an attraction to him and, like, a sort of... Um, no, Lawrence Nightingale effects, and that's maybe why you know, sure. they were together. That would make way more sense than like, oh, hey, I literally bumped into you after the day I was released from the hospital. Not a few days later, not weeks later, not anything like that. Just immediately, we started our relationship <laughs> the moment. <laughs> and you were, were trying to hide a body for me. Yep. Uh, and it's it's so ridiculous. It's so stupid. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a movie that rightly is out of any public consciousness except is like, oh yeah, wasn't that the thriller that Jim Carrey did? It was, but I, it's like we said, don't necessarily discourage Jim Carrey from doing another thriller, perhaps. Um, I've heard he did that one, Dark Crimes, and I heard that was yeah. garbage too, because uh, he's trying to play like yeah. a dirty cop kind of thing. And no, I can't imagine him doing that well. <laughs> no. No, um, no but, but I mean, if anything from this, we can take that all your repressed memories, um, including or anything you've done will come flushing back to you the moment you touch a saxophone. Oh, God, that fucking saxophone. <laughs> the silhouette <laughs> shot. Like, honestly, I would encourage you, don't watch this movie, but watch, like, a supercut of all the detective scenes, because it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yep. 
Like, that's a solid 20 minutes of, like, oh, this is charming and stupid and completely fucking off the batshit crazy cheer. Right. Uh, that stuff is kind of fun to watch, but it's just segmented in between a lot of stuff you have to really slog through. I agree, it feels so much longer than it is. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it's... Would you say this is the worst Joel Schumacher movie? No. No, I would not. My least favorite Joel Schumacher movie is probably Blood Creek. I have not seen uh, that. <laughs> oh, do you know of it, though? Um, Isn't that the one that, like, Michael Fassbender has a lot of tattoos yes. in? he's a Nazi doctor. Okay. And, oh, he died at some farm, and then a bunch of people go out to the farm, and he's resurrected, and he, like, has demon horses and shit. It sounds spooktacular. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it's crazy. That's a bad movie. Uh, that's probably one the worst i i i'd argue that's worse than this but i don't know man schumacher's made a lot of bad movies um i mean considering really i haven't seen some of his more recent work which includes like the nick cage movie trespass or i heard 12 was garbage yeah i haven't seen either of those uh but he's made good movies too like i love falling down i think eight millimeter is a fun movie Mm -hmm. uh i she kind of liked phone booth for what it was i like phone booth until they reveal key for sutherland yeah i agree i think it, I, it really falls dude, the guy did flatliners flatliners is amazing flatliners is fine <laughs> calm down Flatline, okay it's fun <laughs> you don't like the original flatliners i i didn't say i didn't like it adam i said it's fine it's right, a fine well, movie that exists. Maybe Amazing was a little bit too much. <laughs> but it's a perfectly fine cable movie that I saw once. It's and the don't greatest movie of all time, god damn it. No, I'm sure you were the most upset by that remake, clearly. You were the one guy I protesting. Yeah, I never watched it. Yeah, well, no, because you were protesting outside the theater because you were that upset. Exactly. Yep. I'd, uh, <laughs> if it ain't Schumacher, it, ain't, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. That's, that was my sign. I got beat up a lot. Mostly by small children. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they we're going off topic, so that is the end of our discussion on Jim Carrey. Uh, we have some feedback to read. We asked you all, which we do this every Monday um, via the Facebook and Twitter page at DEDBpod, to, um, about your favorite or least favorite movies related to our topic. We asked you all about the Jim Carrey angle of it, um, and friend of the show Heather Thomas says... Uh, he was a staple of my childhood. Final Marshal Bill was my introduction to Jim Carrey, and the rest is history. My favorite movie has got to be Ace Ventura, although I love Earth Girls Are Easy, um, which I mentioned before, I know. Um, least favorite is probably Horton Hears a Who, probably because I feel his physicality, comedic or dramatic, is what makes him so endearing, not his voice. Uh, yeah, Horton Hears a Who's a yeah. thing. Yeah, Horn Hears Hughes. It exists. It's sadly the best theatrical Dr. Seuss movie by process of elimination. Oh, God, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen the new Grinch, but I have zero interest. So. That's true, yeah. Uh, I mean, I said this before at the end of our last episode when we were doing the picking. I don't think the first Ace Ventura holds up very well, I think, for a variety of reasons. It's not just the stuff that's, like, kind of transphobic. And by kind, I mean extremely. But it's also just, I think Ace Ventura as a character is a lot more of, like, it's Jim Carrey's sort of entire persona just on its own without any kind of structure to it. And that gets really grating to me now. I think especially with the first Ace Ventura. It just, he feels almost like the personification of troll logic, where he's the best detective just cuz. 
And that is kind of funny for, like, I think the first bit of that movie. And I think it's really old really quickly. I mean, I still think it's a funny movie. I don't know, man. What do you want from me? I think it's a funny movie. I can't explain why I think it's funny, but I think it's funny. The character I most related to rewatching it was Tone Loke. Tone Loke was... <laughs> I felt so for Tone Loke just watching this guy talking out of his ass like, man, I gotta do my job. <laughs> Can you leave me alone? <laughs> I felt so much for that man. Uh, <laughs> um, but Earth Goes Reason, that also is one that not a lot of people remember. That was before his big uh, catapult into superstardom. You gotta figure the biggest stars in the movie are Gina Davis and Jack Goldblum, and then his uh, other partner is Damon Wayans. Yes, I think that's where they met before in Living Color, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, next up, Brian Kane says, um, "Eternal Sunshine and Truman Show have uh, have to be my favorite starring him. Uh, always favored his more dramatic roles. Pretty much everything he's done that's aimed at kids has fallen flat for me. Sole exception being Christmas Carol for his performance alone. Um, yeah, I mean, Eternal Sunshine we didn't talk about, but it's an amazing movie." I still think it's one of the best lo-fi sci-fi movies of recent memory. Yeah, I agree. I really like that movie. I think, unfortunately, it got uh, a little bit over um, exposed when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And But I still do really like the film. I think it's a great film. I think not only is Jim Carrey and uh, Winslet fantastic in it, but I think Mark Ruffalo and Elijah Wood both turn in fantastic performances. Uh, Truman Show, as we said, I love Truman Show now. And I, I don't really do the pretty much everything he's done, Amy Kids. Well, I guess I kind of do. Liar, liar to me, there's a lot of good stuff for kids. You know, he's being silly, he's being crazy. You got the dad and the kid relationship, but there's also enough adult stuff in it to make you laugh for the parents and everything. I think Liar, liar is fun. And Christmas Carol, I, I also think, is a very underrated movie. You know, I, I think it's the best of those uh, motion capture movies that Zemeckis did. I think mainly because it's like I, I agree with him. I think Carrie's performance is one of the few that actually works for his style of motion capture. And I think the design, actually, of Scrooge is one of the better examples like why you would do the motion capture. Because he looks perfectly like a storybook version of that character. It's, like, pitch perfect. The other people around him are supposed to be realistic, not necessarily. Um, but the, the actual personification of Scrooge and also the other sort of ghosts that he meets... I actually really like, I think it's one of the better examples of like trying to actually take the darker perspective of the original Dickens novella. Yeah, I agree with that. It, yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of the better ones in that vein, especially one that a kid could watch, um, I think for sure. Um, and then we had some other feedback uh, related to our previous episodes. Um, at Ryan underscore Quarterman on Instagram says, Night of the Hunter is Bay, referencing our last episode, which I'm sure is what Charles Lawton would have exactly wanted. Absolutely. You know, to think about Quarterman, Ryan Quarterman has, was part of my favorite podcast I've ever been on, also with you. So anything he says, I'm okay with. Yes, Ryan is a <laughs> friend of ours, and we would love to have him on the show. Ryan, if you're listening, please. Oh, absolutely. Come on, Ryan, come back. We want to do some stupid shit with you again. Always fun. Um, and then Jeff L. Uh, had this to say. He emailed this actually to us at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, which you can send feedback to. Um, said, great unbreakable slash after earth podcast. My son and I just finished a little M night binge and I can say your analysis of unbreakable was spot on. You guys always nail it. Having Whitney join in was a real treat. Um, I've heard her on the decades of horror classic episodes, uh, and enjoy listening to her critical slash podcast growth. She is earnest, which can be rare and actually quite funny. Uh, like I said, a nice touch. Take care guys. Thomas, you rule. 
What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> uh, but, but thank you, Jeff. And yeah, we, we loved having Whitney on. She didn't mention this on the episode, but yeah, she's on the Decades of Horror, the classic era, which is over at Grusin Magazine. Uh, you can listen uh-huh. to her there. I just saw they uploaded recently an episode on The Invisible Man. But but yeah, yeah and, and I, I do think, I think the, uh, to toot our own horn, I really do like that Unbreakable After Earth episode. I do too. I actually, uh, I do like that episode, but I think our uh, Star Trek episode is my favorite episode we've ever done. And that's really interesting considering the context of when we re- recorded it, which was very quick and rushed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious, though. Yes, I really like that one, too. And enough tooting our own horn, because we want to thank all of you for sending that feedback. We also want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Emily Scarda for the art used in our show. She accepts commission at fiverwith2rs.com slash eescarda. And as we mentioned before, we have the Twitter and Facebook account at dedbpod. That's both on Twitter and Facebook, uh, where you can submit feedback and also answer our little questionnaires that we do on Mondays. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, and we're also on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, we're on most places where podcasts are available. iTunes. iTunes. Uh, everywhere, I- everywhere guys. Yes, and YouTube, of course, as well. Um, and you can rate and review us all over there. It helps us get more visibility on any of those platforms. If you rate us, review us, anything, just take a small time uh, and give us, please give us feedback on there. Please. <laughs> Please. Uh, yes, and uh, we. you can also catch me on my own individual Twitter account, at Not the Who's Tommy. Um, you can also read my own written reviews at marianithomas.wordpress.com. And you can find Adam scrawling on walls trying to find what the number 23 really means. I'm going to say it's it's just a number. Deductive reasoning. Aces. Yep. That's what uh, I'm good at. <laughs> uh, but now, before we leave, uh, it's time to do our picking for next week's episode. So every week uh, at the end of the episode, we pick the two movies for next week. Uh, each of us has two good movies and two bad movies, and we've assigned each of them a number between 1 and 10. Um, and they're we only know that they're based around a certain topic, not the specific titles for each other's movies. And that topic, in honor of uh, we'll be releasing this one around Valentine's Day, is Aww. romantic films. Oh, and you know what, dude? I'm, I was really excited for this one because, I mean, honestly, I don't know that two men will really sit around and talk about romance movies. But you know what, Adam? Earlier in the episode, you had me at hello. <laughs> okay. I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> um, but I have the two good ones, and Adam has the two bad romance films. Um, and so, Adam, go ahead and uh, pick a number between one and ten for my two good choices. Shot through the heart, you're to blame. I'm going to give you a number eight. All right. At number nine, I had um, a movie that I think, you know, speaking of number 23... Uh, this one does feel a bit lost in time, uh, both figuratively and literally, because it is a sci-fi romance film from 1980, starring Christopher Reeve, Somewhere in Time. Oh, that's a good movie. Holy fuck, I haven't seen that in forever. Wow. Look at you. You grow. You're all grossed up. Oh, shucks. Uh, well, and at number six, I had one that I think is deserves more attention. It's a very underrated movie to me. Um, it's a recent one. It's called Sleeping with Other People, starring Alison Brie and Jason Sudeikis. It's a romantic comedy that I discovered actually last Valentine's Day. And it's a cute little movie that's really funny, really genuine, has a great supporting cast around those two. I would recommend that. It's a charming little movie. 
Oh, I've never heard or seen it. So, yeah, I'll check that one out. Well, thank you, Thomas. Now it's your turn. You oh. fuck you. <laughs> you, you fuck you. What, what does that mean? <laughs> Say hello to your mother for me. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, with, with that encouragement, I'm going to go with number six. At number four, I have The Room. <laughs> you wanted one of the worst romance movies of all time. I mean, there it's true. It's, it's, a, it's a true bad romance. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, what else can we say, though? We never talked about it. No, we have. I guess I guess so. But what would have been uh, my other choice, Adam? Number 10, I had Angel Eyes with Jim Caviezel and Jennifer Lopez. Never heard of that. That's probably for the best. Pro- probably. <laughs> I, I saw that one at the show. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> that's going to be an interesting one. Well, we're in for a lovely romantic evening next week. Uh, but until then, we got to stretch our faces out of here, everybody. Bye, y'all.